what a privilege it is to partake of the Lord's Supper. I hope you understand the gravity of this uh, sacred ordinance of the church, or at least uh, have begun to contemplate the gravity of it. In the Lord's Supper, it's, it is this weird ancient thing that we do, right? I mean, if we're honest and we're having a family conversation, uh, apart from what we know about it in Scripture, if anybody were to look onto it from an outside perspective, they'd say, that's just, that's weird, right? But what is spectacular about the Lord's Supper is it, it, through the sacred ordinance in remembrance of Christ, it enjoins us to Jesus Christ, our brother, right? And through Christ then to our heavenly Father, and by virtue of doing this as a church, because this is a church ordinance, we are enjoined to one another. It's a great mystery that we can't understand, but it's of the utmost importance. And so uh, I encourage you each and every month when this time comes around that you would take communion very seriously. It is a joy to partake in the Lord's Supper with each and every one of you. I've been praying for you all, and I have, uh, I've been praying for you all week, and I've been praying for you in advance of this message this morning, um, because I know what happens during a series that is about God's provision. When you say series, your iPad, even if it's on uh, airplane mode, thinks that you've said S-I-R-I. During this time when we talk about provision and God's provision, uh, there is a tendency for some to back away because they don't want to hear something particularly convicting. For others, this is a sensitive heart topic, as Jesus warned us it would be. That's why he talked about it so much. But I would say uh, that it is an important time that we lean in and never hear a message on God's provision in the following way. If you don't get anything else today, this is worth the price of admission. The message about God's provision and our responsibility with it is not the church telling you what you should do with your money. A message about God's provision and our responsibility with said provision is is a message about God telling us what we should do with his money. Do you see the difference? It's radically different. It has nothing to do with the church telling you what you should do with your money. It has everything to do with God telling us what we should do with his money. And if we can start there presuppositionally, I think we'll have a better, uh, a better shot at grasping what Jesus is going to teach us today in his word. I told you last week that I was going to say something about the, uh, that I was going to teach you something about the tithe that would maybe shock you, that I would teach you something today that you may go home saying, I don't believe I would have said that if I were in his position. And so I want to explain first what the tithe is, and then I'll tell you that thing you don't expect me to say. So the tithe, as we, heard, as we even just heard Pastor Steve Williams talk through uh, this, this beautiful harmony between the Old and the New Testament, this idea of promise and fulfillment, this idea of the law giving way to Jesus being the fulfillment of the law, and then opening up, giving us grace and freedom to, to obey God, to be committed to God, to be devoted to his word. We similarly see that the tithe was an institution whereby a tenth 
of Israel's grain, wine, oil, seed, fruit, herds, and flocks were given to the Lord. Now this was done in such a way that it would fund the Levites, who were essentially the ministry workers of the tabernacle and later the temple. Then the Levites themselves uh, gave a tithe on the tithe to the chief priest. And so it had this notion of moving forward the ministry, but being for the work that God would accomplish in that nation. We often refer to the tithe as 10%, and that's not incorrect, but it's also not complete. The Israelites didn't simply render 10% of their income. In fact, scholars believe, and I've, if you don't have one of those inserts, you might want to grab one. There's going to be some places to take notes today on your, on your message guide. But scholars believe in, in the range of 12 to 14 tithes were offered by the Israelites over a seven-year period. 12 to 14 over a seven-year period. These would be renderings of 10%. And so the actual number that was practiced in Israel is somewhere closer to 20% of the tithe. Uh, And so I said that I'd tell you something surprising today, and it's led up to that point. Uh, And that surprising thing that I intend to share with you today is that through careful reading of Scripture um, and consultation with scholars whom I trust, I don't believe that Christians are under the tithe today. I don't believe that there is an obligation for Christians to give a particular percentage of their income. You see, the tithe was a trapping of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, some would turn back and say, well, there were tithes offered before Moses, and that's true. Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek, and Jacob offered a tithe to the Lord as well, right? And so we see that it's a best practice, but it was a requirement under the law of Moses. And as Pastor uh, Steve Williams was talking about this morning, you have, uh, you have this idea in Leviticus of things that were required, and things that were, uh, were optional, that you were free to participate in. And so similarly, um, the tithe is no longer a burden to the new believer, or to the believer under the new covenant. You can't get far in the New Testament and read without understanding that Jesus has fulfilled the old covenant of Moses. The law has been fulfilled by Christ. And as we just even beautifully God has orchestrated that we would talk about that in the Lord's Supper. That through his death, burial, and resurrection, he would be the consummation of the law of God. The, the unattainable, seemingly impossible standard of God to reach would be reached by one holy man who was a God-man, in fact, sent by his Father in heaven to pay the penalty for our sins. And so because of his fulfillment... We're no longer under the law. Now, for those of you who are shocked because this is something that, um, that one definitely shouldn't say during a series on godly finances, if you are truly dedicated to that ideal of a biblical Old Testament tithe, feel free to practice it, but just understand again that it's somewhere closer to 20%. You can have your cake and eat it too. If you're new today, you're not only disappointed because the senior pastor's not here, and you probably, if you invited a new person, you said, you've got to go to my church. Our pastor is so cool. And then 
They, this is not the guy they've seen online. So there's that, that's the starting point, right? And then the second piece is you're here and you feel like, oh, here we are. We're in a financial series. Let me give you, um, let me let you off the hook on that second one. This is not a message about money today. This is a message about the heart. This is not a message about your finance. This is a message about the position of your heart. Because while Christians are not under the tithe, Jesus doesn't stop there, right? He always teaches us something else about what was communicated in the Old Covenant. You'll remember the time that he got into a a conflict with the religious leaders about the Sabbath, and they said, why are you going around doing these things on the Sabbath? You're healing on the Sabbath. Uh, You're plucking grain heads from the edge of of the farms on the Sabbath. These things are work. And Jesus said, man wasn't created for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created for man. God established the Sabbath as a principle of rest and godly devotion and of worship to dedicate one's day to God. In the same way, the tithe or the practice of sacrifice and giving serves God's people, but they are not a slave to it. Does that make sense? So, is what we've said so far that Christians shouldn't tithe, or simply that Christians aren't obligated to tithe? And perhaps that is, uh, that's not a question you can answer now. That may be rhetorical for some of you at this point. Now, before you nudge your spouse, of course, and say, see, I told you, <laughs> we weren't supposed to tithe all along. We're not under the tithe. That's old covenant, honey. Don't get ahead of yourself, because Jesus does have some some, uh, some things that we should listen to and pay attention to today. I know some of you are particularly... Um, financial messages in church are a hot-button issue for you, and you, just, you, don't, you tune it out. But remember, this is a heart message. It's not about money. Jesus uses money as an instrument to teach about how devotion from the heart can be made clear. In the same way, we are to be instructed through Scripture by finances used as a literary device, as an indicator, as a litmus test, as a barometer of the heart. Do you see the difference? Let's see what Jesus says. We've got four passages of Scripture today, and if you know me, you know I'm partial to a side road, so don't hold me to just the four passages. But we're going to start in Matthew chapter 6. Right at the beginning of Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to talk about how Jesus clears up the idea of rewards and giving. I can hear the pages turning in the room right now as you flip to Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So right off the bat, there seems to be a contradiction here. Is something that's confusing because Jesus says they would receive no reward 
And then he says, they have received their reward. But a wise and careful reading, where we go back and we read and we reread and we reread and we say, oh, he said they will have no reward from their Father who is in heaven, and they've received the reward. What is it that they were looking for? The approval of man in the way that they gave, like the hypocrites. They are seeking the approval of man, and that's precisely what they get. That's their only reward. They receive no reward from their Father who is in heaven. Their only reward is the approval of man. And then when he says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, listen, don't overthink your giving to the point where you become proud of what you have lived up to. We've worked so hard, we've, we've devoted ourselves, and we've gotten to this place where finally we're giving sacrificially and generously, and aren't we special and holy before God? That would be an improper perspective. That would be letting your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Self-righteousness is so easy for us. It's a slippery slope, isn't it? Man, we can get self-righteous like that. And so protect your own heart by not overthinking the gift. What we see here in Matthew 6, verses 1 through 4, is that the hypocrites don't have a proper heart position. The hypocrites don't have a proper heart position. It's very clear what Jesus is trying to teach here. Squarely in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Now we remember too that he teaches here, in, that Matthew teaches us in this in triplicate, right? So he teaches about giving and then he teaches us about prayer and he teaches us about fasting. And he's got a little bit to say about each one, but the idea is contrasting what the hypocrites do for the approval of man with what God's people should do, Christ followers should do, in response to God and from a position of the heart that is pure. We're going to stay in Matthew 6 and move now to verse 19. This again is at the end of this triplicate here, this trio that you see. If you look right in, your, in, in any Bible that's got headings, you'll see giving to the needy most likely on that first section that we just read. And then we read about the Lord's Prayer, and he's going to teach something about Lord's Prayer. And then in verse 16, we read about fasting. It's the same formula. Don't do what the hypocrites do, but rather be devoted to God in your heart. And then, he, and then it's all closed out here beginning in verse 19 where Jesus gives us this litmus test for devotion. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either they will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so in this passage, which lists three different uh, measures of spiritual discipline, giving, prayer, fasting. Now it's all summed up and uses again finance 
as the litmus test. When he says that uh, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, this is a this is a path, this is a verse which says that your heart and your treasure cannot occupy the same space. There's nothing ambiguous about what he says. It's not interpretable other than the fact that your heart and your treasure can't occupy the same space. It's harsh towards those with an improper perspective, in fact. And if you have an improper perspective, you will read that and it will be harsh to you. But then he talks about how no one can serve two masters. This is also harsh language. It's not inclusive. It's not ambiguous. You either love one or you hate the other, he says. Um, You either love one and hate the other, or you're either devoted to one and you despise the other. Again, not inclusive language here from Jesus. It seems as if Jesus uh, tends to believe this is a pretty black and white issue. You are either devoted to your possessions and you despise the things of God, made clear by the fact that you've ignored his admonition to be generous and sacrificial, or you're devoted to the things of God and you treat your possessions as actually belonging to him. If it's important to the Lord Jesus, it's got to be important to us. We should pay great attention. Again, we should note that this is about the heart, isn't it? If we want to boil this down to some least common denominator and make it about money, we've missed the point. But that's what happens with Scripture, isn't it? If you don't have God working in your life and in your heart, if the Holy Spirit isn't doing a work in you, you can't understand the Scriptures. And so for those of you who still think it's about money, I would submit to you to pray to God that His Holy Spirit would open the eyes of your heart that you would see that this is not about money. Jesus is trying to teach the people something here. Jesus is trying to teach us something here. Where you focus your provision indicates the position of your heart. Where you focus the provision indicates the provision of your heart. If God's provision to you is understood as belonging to Him, and it's dedicated to sacrifice and generosity, then you're indicating that you love and are devoted to God. That is to say, if if your provision is understood by you to belong to God, and you are devoted to sacrifice and generosity, then your heart is indicating where your love and devotion is. If, however, your provision is understood to be yours and is dedicated to scant and comfortable giving, if giving at all, that makes you feel obedient or somehow good about yourself, virtuous even, then you're indicating that your love and devotion is to money. These are not my words. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ has said. And so my power up here is is limited My role is to educate and to exhort, right? There's an educative uh, role and there's an exhortative role. And I'm certainly much better at education than exhortation. But if you listen to God's word and what it's trying to indicate here, and you don't miss the message, it'll land on your heart in such a way that it will result in life change. 
Next, I want to move us on to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Jesus is going to describe for us the fate of the stingy. That's a word you don't hear very often. I feel like when I was a kid, people said stingy a lot. Maybe it's because I was a stingy kid. I don't know. I just don't hear stingy anymore. Also, don't see roly-polies. What happened to roly-polies? They were everywhere when we were kids, right? I don't know. Things that make you wonder. All right, you're in Luke 12 now, yes? All right, so in Luke 12, beginning in verse 13, we're going to read uh, a, a beautiful parable. I want you to pay very close attention to it. I want you to pay attention to this dichotomy that will emerge in this parable between the eternal and the perishable. The eternal and the perishable. That's what's being taught here, okay? And it's not about money. It's about the heart. Don't miss it. The heart, eternal, perishable. Someone in the crowd that Jesus was teaching, right? We've seen, we see him in these situations. He's in his Galilean ministry. He hasn't yet begun his, uh, his road to Jerusalem. Luke is telling us about the ministry there in Galilee. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to the man, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And Jesus then said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told him a parable, as he loved to do. Parables, remember, have a dual role. They are meant to, uh, to illuminate something and to hide something. They have this dual role of hiding the truth and teaching the truth. Who is it hidden from? It's hidden from the ungodly. If you don't understand the parable, keep reading it. You will understand it if you're regenerate and have the Holy Spirit living inside you. But if you understand the parable or at least get what it's pointing to, it's because you are one of God's chosen people. That is how Scripture is illumined to us. He told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. First thing to note here is Jesus makes it clear that one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. For many of us, without many possessions, that's a comfort. Man, here in the West, we're so blessed, though, aren't we? We don't even understand. We can't even imagine how this parable connected in the ancient Near Eastern context with the majority of the people who would hear it. Notice that Jesus contrasts the soul, which is eternal, with the possessions, which are perishable. 
right? There is this focus should be on the soul, but the man is focused on his possessions. He's focused on the perishable thing when there's this eternal thing. And this eternal destination of his soul, he was not prepared for. He was prepared to tear his barns down, build bigger barns, and amass, and amass, and amass for himself. Because in this man's mind, this fictional, parabolic man's mind, that was doing well for himself. He may have even convinced himself that I'm doing this for my children and for my children's children. Noble causes, but when one hasn't rendered to God what God has asked for, He's missed the point. He's missed this vast chasm between the eternal and the perishable. Even the body is perishable. You know, we say all the time, you are not a body who happens to have a soul. You are a soul who has a body. Do you get the difference? You're not a human body that has a soul, though that's how we often refer to the human. You're a soul who has a body, and your soul is imperishable. And so we see here counted as folly, the amassing of treasures for oneself, and the connection with such hoarding with the forfeiture of one's soul. Again, strong words from gentle Jesus, meek and mild. What's the Lord teaching about the position of the heart. Finally, we come today to Luke 21. And we're going to look at the beginning of Luke 21, since you're already in Luke. We're going to see here how Jesus commends sacrifice and generosity. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. You've heard this story before. You've probably considered the implications of this story before. It's probably rightly been communicated to you as an indication of how we should sacrifice, even when we don't have much. And that's true. But do you recognize the difference that Jesus is indicating between the heart of the wealthy and the heart of the poor woman? Listen, there are, the, there are poor among us, and there are wealthy among us. And Jesus' message seems to be to both groups, doesn't it? There are generous among us and there are stingy among us. And what Jesus was indicating is, Jesus, by the way, the God-man who sees the heart, he's not just saying that a rich person giving an offering is somehow ungodly. Jesus sees through to the heart of the rich who were giving offerings there at the temple and he sees the heart of this woman who is poor and has nothing and puts in her offering. What he's indicating, it was not sacrificial for them, and it was not out of generosity. Perhaps it was even out of obedience. Obedience isn't a bad thing, is it? But Jesus seems to suggest here that 
with an improper heart position, even obedience is worthless. But with a proper heart position, these two little copper coins are amazing. And so we see the woman's gift here as seen as greater than the act of obedience. And we see the woman's gift here as greater than the monetarily larger gift. And we have to ask ourselves, who gave the larger gift? It's not a trick question. Who gave the larger gift? Mumble, mumble. I know, I wouldn't want to get it wrong either. The people who gave the bigger gift, the rich people, gave the larger gift. But who gave the greater gift? According to Jesus, it's the woman. The poor woman. Do you think that could be said of us? Even in wealth? Yeah, because it's not about the amount of money that they had. It's not about the amount of money that they gave. It's that they gave out of their abundance with this apparent disconnected heart, and she gave out of her little with a pure heart. Jesus teaches us here through these different passages that there's a litmus test to our devotion. And God knows, and has always known, and Jesus knows, and that's why he teaches about it so much, that what we do with finance is directly indicative of what is happening in our hearts. And so there's groups of us who perhaps have never trusted God with our finances. Some of you say, I don't have anything to give. And then we read a story like this and we say, Goodness, I should probably be giving something. Some of you think that this doesn't apply to you, and you were happy when I said that Christians are not under the tithe. And then we hear Jesus' words, and that messed everything up. Some of you are generous, and some of you sacrifice. Some of you give a tenth when sacrifice for you would be 15% or more. That's just the fact of the matter here in the West for us, right? And some of you inexplicably don't believe this part of Scripture. Rick Warren, we've quoted him here before, saying you only believe the parts of Scripture you actually do, right? Why is it that, why is it that when you've nominated some of your peers for positions in the church which require a pattern of biblical stewardship, they don't make the ballot? And you look, and the treasurer says, no, man, this person, they've been here since day one, but they've never given to the ministry. Maybe it's because, man, I don't want to presume anything, maybe it's because you can't support the mission of North Point Church. If that's the case, go to a local assembly where you can support the mission, vision, values of the church. Or come see a pastor and say, here's my disconnect. For those of you who are married, the spouse who gets this, by the way, is the spiritual leader in the family. I say there are no exceptions. For those of you who are married, the spouse who gets this and understands the proper heart position with finances is the spiritual leader in the family. Now, there are many godly spouses out here, many godly marriages where you both get it, and I'm grateful for that. But where you don't, evaluate, evaluate, I told you that Christians aren't under the old covenant that required multiple tithes as part of the Mosaic law. 
And then we remember that the old covenant was written on stone tablets and the new covenant is written on human hearts. That's the part where if we were awake, we'd say amen. The old covenant was written on stone tablets. Here's your chance. The old covenant was written on tablets of stone and the new covenant is written on human hearts. Christ has called us to something so much higher than a percentage of our income. He's called you and me to truly sacrifice. He's called us to truly devote ourselves to the going forth, the proclamation of the gospel, which we can only do together. He's called us to generosity. You know, when when your children are at home and you make them go to church, that's a good thing, by the way. Because it trains them into the expectation, it gets them in front of gospel teaching, and it trains them into obedience. And then they leave home, and you pray and you hope that they'll still go to church, and sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't, but when they do, and they were free to do it or not to do it, the joy that's there that your kids picked out when they didn't even have to go. They went. They decided to go. They decided to do something virtuous, something good for their soul. What is the greater joy? That they would do it out of obedience or that they would do it out of freedom? This is the kind of sacrifice that Jesus has called us to. And who better to call us to sacrifice than the one who modeled the ultimate sacrifice? We just took communion. We just celebrated the Lord's Supper. Where we talked about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That there would be a sin death that would have to be paid to where man could even approach God much less be reconciled to him. And Jesus, the one without sin, became sin on our behalf. And he loves us enough to teach us how to live our lives in a way that's pleasing to God. Though he saved us, though he's rescued our eternal souls, he's called us to something higher. Because through this understanding of how to treat God's possessions together again we've been enjoined to one another even through the Lord's Supper through Holy Communion together we can ensure that the gospel goes forth and we can make the name of Jesus Christ famous in this community across the street and around the world but we have to do it together And so there's a difference between this posture of obedience and the heart position of sacrifice and generosity. Listen, God does not need your money. God wants your heart. God wants your heart. And where your treasure is, there is your heart. There's no way around it. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. Let me pray for you. 
Heavenly and gracious Father, what a joy it is to be in this place today with your people. What a joy it is to have been together to celebrate the Lord's Supper and to understand that there is this union, this higher calling that you have asked us to devote ourselves to, that we would be committed to one another, that we would be committed to the discipleship of each other, to the love and the the admonition of one another. God, that you would give us the ability not only to encourage and to educate, but to exhort that we would read carefully the words of your Son, that we would read carefully and wisely as he directs us, telling us that what happens with finances, God, indicates the position of our heart. Lord, you know this is not a church growth strategy. You know this is what happens when God's people are committed to the Great Commission. And oh, what work can be done here in this community across the street and around the world if your people catch this vision. Father, let us not be under obligation because that obligation was fulfilled by your precious son. Let us be free to serve you, to live devoted to you, and to be your followers because of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for us. Wow. What a freedom. What a joy. What a blessing. And it's all in Jesus' name. It's in his name that we pray.